Please turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 14. 2 Samuel chapter 14. While you're turning there, allow me to remind you just briefly of the context for our chapter today. You'll remember that David's kingdom is in a bit of a downward spiral at this point. It all started one afternoon when David saw another man's wife and took her for himself. It was adultery and murder soon followed. Mercifully, however, David was brought to repentance for his sin, but there would still be consequences for what he had done. Those consequences erupted in our previous passage, chapter 13, as one of David's own sons violated his sister Tamar, which in turn led another son, Absalom, to strike down the offending brother in cold blood. So just to recap, adultery, murder, unspeakable evil, and more murder. That's where things stand in David's kingdom at this point. And that brings us to chapter 14, where the story, or we could say the spiral, continues. So please follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church in 2 Samuel 14. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please, let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant, for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest, for my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. 
Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide anything that I ask of you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come. He sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask why have I come from Geshur. It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we've already confessed today that Your Word is life. It's good for us. It's comforting to us. It's instructive and corrective. We pray, God, that You would give us grace to hear it as such and that You would help us, Father, to know truth from error and to believe the things that You have spoken to be true, and that we would not only hear the Word, Father, but apply it and do it by faith, that You might be pleased and we might be built up. Lord, give me grace today to speak things that are faithful to the Scriptures, and give Your people the grace to hold fast to the Word of God and to nothing else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you remember the first time that you learned that looks can be deceiving. I don't know if it was the first time for me, but it was certainly the most memorable time. I was 16 years old, and like most 16-year-olds, I had spent the last several summers saving money to buy a car. And I finally found the car, the one car, a 1966 Ford Mustang. 
you can sound impressed. It was impressive. At least I thought it was. I was convinced this car was the final piece to my never-ending teenage quest to be cool. And it was a pretty sharp-looking car. Sure, it needed some new tires and a few other things, but overall, it looked good. In fact, it looked so good, I got to work right away getting it ready to hit the road. And that's when I found out that looks can be deceiving. While I was cleaning the car, I took out the back floor mats only to find a hole in the floorboard. And I don't mean like a small size hole, I mean a Fred Flintstone size hole. You know, stick your feet out and touch the ground size hole. There would be no driving that car anytime soon. So what looked so good at first glance turned out to have serious issues. Looks can be deceiving, right? Well, that same realization could describe our reading of 2 Samuel 14. At first glance, this chapter looks good. Especially compared to where we've been. I mean, think about it. No one is attacked. No one is violated. No one is murdered. That's pretty good compared to where we've been. On the surface, there even appears to be some helpful things going on, right? David listens to the wisdom of other people. He eventually reaches out to his estranged son, Absalom. Aren't those good things? Isn't it better to be reconciled to people? Well, of course those are good things. But are those things actually true of this passage? Is that what's really going on? Friends, I'll contend that it's not. When it comes to 2 Samuel 14, looks can be deceiving. You see, this is a good example of the rewarding challenge of reading biblical narratives. They make you think. They make you think. The narrative isn't always clear-cut. The story isn't always in black and white, but instead it challenges you to apply what you know from other parts of the Bible in order to make sense of the story. So for our passage, we hear this wise woman from Tekoa, but we're meant to compare her words to what Scripture says. Is she really wise? We see Joab angling for the banished son to come home, but we need to stop and remember, Absalom murdered his own brother in cold blood, and God's Word was clear on how to deal with those crimes. Is Joab right? Or even take Absalom, who seems to want to see his father again. We hear that desire, but we also need to hear the echoes from earlier in 1 Samuel that warn us to see beyond the man's good looks. Is Absalom to be trusted? Friends, when we slow down to answer those questions, we'll soon realize that this chapter calls for more than a quick reading. While it is certainly not as shocking as the previous chapter, few chapters are, 2 Samuel 14 is no less of a glimpse into the downward spiral of David's kingdom than that passage was. The direction is still downward. As you look now at the details of the chapter, you'll notice the passage divides rather neatly into two parts, or we could say two scenes. You can tell the division by paying attention to Absalom. In verses 1-22, to it's all about getting Absalom back. That's the first scene. And then in verses 23 to 33, it's all about what Absalom does once he gets back. That's the second scene. But as we noted just a moment ago, the events of each scene are not necessarily what they appear to be. So, for our purposes this morning, we're going to consider the reality of each scene. We want to press beyond the appearances 
And then from each of those realities, we're going to identify a warning for the people of God today. So two scenes means two truths. Let's begin with the first in verses 1 to 22. We'll call this scene injustice disguised as wisdom. Injustice disguised as wisdom. If you were to summarize this first scene, it would go something like this. A messenger is sent to King David in order to tell him a story. It's an emotional story. One that pulls at the king's heartstrings and draws him in. But then once the king has been hooked, the messenger flips the script and reveals that the story is actually about David. That's been the point all along. The messenger only used the story to confront the king. That would be a short but fair summary of the first scene here. But it also sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like chapter 12, where the prophet Nathan was sent to David with a story that convicted the king of his sin with Bathsheba. Do you remember that? It was a brilliant piece of persuasion on Nathan's part. And now here in chapter 14, it appears that something similar is happening. A messenger comes with a story, and again, the purpose is to open David's eyes, so to speak, to the truth. But when you compare the two messages, Nathan in chapter 12, and this woman in chapter 14, when you compare the two messages, you soon realize that this passage is a far cry from Nathan's wise rebuke in chapter 12. They're not the same at all. There are a number of key differences that should cause you to question whether or not this is actually wisdom. In fact, paying attention to those differences between Nathan, the wise prophet, and then this woman from Tekoa, paying attention to those differences is a helpful way of discerning what's really going on in this text. So let's notice those differences together. First of all, you'll notice that Joab is the one who initiates the story in chapter 14. It was God who sent Nathan in chapter 12, but here it's Joab, the ruthless military commander, who sends the woman from Tekoa. For some reason, Joab thinks it would be best for Absalom to come home. David obviously has some concerns about that, or else why would Joab have to go to such trouble to convince the king to bring his son home? Verse 1 there in your Bibles is really hard to translate, but the end of the chapter should shed some light on verse 1, on David's attitude. Remember, he refuses to see Absalom for two years, which suggests that David is less than thrilled about Absalom coming back. But not Joab. For whatever reason, Joab thinks it would be best to bring Absalom back. Verses 2-3 to describe his plan. He recruits a wise woman from Tekoa. If you're reading through 2 Samuel, that word wise should get your attention. It's the same word that chapter 13 translated as crafty and applied to Amnon's friend Jonadab. You remember that cat who stirred up all the trouble in the last chapter? He was crafty. This woman is wise. It's the same word. And that connection should get your attention. Is this woman wise or is she cunning? Whatever you decide, this is clearly Joab's show. Notice the last line in verse 3. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Again, catch the difference, friends. Nathan came to David with the word of the Lord. This woman comes to David with the word of Joab. And that difference alone is enough to give you pause. We see yet another difference as the woman arrives in verse 4. Whereas Nathan revealed the truth 
this woman in chapter 14 confuses the truth. Her story is simple enough to follow. You can see it there in verses 5 to 7. She's a widow, and she had two sons. Sadly, her sons got into an argument, and since there was no one to intervene, the argument got physical, and one son killed the other. But to make matters worse, her extended family now wants to execute the remaining son for his crime. And so, the woman has come to the king to plead for her son's life. Now, as readers of 2 Samuel, we know the woman intends for her story to mirror what has happened in David's family. David had two sons, just like the widow. And David's two sons were at odds with one another, just like the widow. And one of David's sons rose up and killed the other one, just like the widow. So you can see what's going on. If David agrees that the woman's son should be spared, then surely he has to agree that Absalom would be spared. You see her goal? She clearly intends for her story to persuade David and then constrain him to do something. But are the two situations actually the same? Well, no, they're not. While the woman's story sounds persuasive, she's actually confusing the truth. This is where you have to listen to the law of Moses while you're listening to the woman's story. The way she tells it, her son was guilty of manslaughter, not murder. The law of Moses made a distinction between the two. Manslaughter was not premeditated. Perhaps it was even accidental. It's what happened when two people get into a fight and one gets out of control and kills the other. He didn't plan to do it. And in such cases, the law provided a way for the offending person to be spared from death. And that's what the woman appeals to David. It wasn't premeditated, she says. It wasn't out of hatred, she says. And therefore, David should spare her son. Which, of course, means that David should spare Absalom. But friends, do you see how the story confuses the truth? Absalom didn't commit manslaughter. He murdered his brother outright in cold blood. You remember? He planned for two years. He plotted. He deceived. And when the time was right, he struck. And therefore, according to the law of Moses, there's only one possible outcome for Absalom. Death. Murder was a capital crime. So regardless of how David feels, the law of God requires him to punish his son. This woman might be persuasive. Her story might even make sense and seem to provide a way out. But at its core, the story confuses the truth. It's not really what's going on. There's one more difference between her story and Nathan's story. In chapter 12, Nathan applied God's character in order to prick David's conscience. Here in chapter 14, this woman misuses God's character in order to play on David's sentiment. Nathan applied the character of God. She misuses the character of God. Notice how it happens. In verses 8 to 10, David attempts to delay. He tells the woman to go home, but she's not satisfied. She presses the king to decide. And so in verse 11, David does just that. He agrees with the woman's case and he rules that her remaining son should not be put to death. But then the woman flips the script in verse 13. If David agrees that her son should live, then why, she asks, is the king refusing to spare Absalom? I mean, she even suggests that David is harming the people of God. That he's going against the covenant people of God by failing to restore his son. 
And if that were not enough, she delivers her final blow in verse 14. Notice again what she says. And listen for how she appeals to God's character. We must all die. We're like water spilled out on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. That's clever, isn't it? I mean, the woman says, in effect, what's done is done. Amnon is dead. And you can't bring him back any more than you can scoop up spilled water. So why make it worse, David? Isn't God merciful, David? Doesn't God desire to give life rather than take it away? Hasn't God even given you a way to bring your son back? It's all about mercy, David. Can't you see that? And to be sure, the woman is right. On one hand, God is merciful. God does delight to give life. And He takes no pleasure in death. Not even the death of the wicked. God is merciful. And yet, what has the woman obscured? God's justice. Friends, this is why I say the woman misuses the character of God. She attempts to pit one of God's attributes against another. It's like that silly question that sometimes high school freshmen will ask you, can God create a rock so big that not even He can pick it up? That's a silly question. It's a non-question. Because you can't pit God against Himself. That's what this woman is doing. She overrides God's justice with an appeal to God's mercy. You can't do that. Is it clever? Yes. It's very clever. Does it sound good? Absolutely. But is it wise? No. At least not as God intends wisdom to be applied. You see, friends, this exchange in this chapter might sound like the prophet Nathan confronting and correcting the wayward king, but when you dig a little deeper, there are all these differences that give you pause. It starts with Joab, not God. It confuses the truth rather than reveals it. And most problematic of all, it misuses God's character. And yet David agrees. And he does so eyes wide open, so to speak. Look at verse 18. David asks the woman, is Joab behind this? You'll notice that twice the woman praised David for having the wisdom of God, which is now ironically used to expose her. Is Joab behind this, David asks. The woman says yes. So Joab, David summons Joab and tells him to bring Absalom back. Understand, friends, this is an unwise decision. It's unwise because it goes against God's Word. Just as David did with Amnon, he again fails to discipline his own son. The king continues to be passive. And instead of doing what the Scriptures require, David agrees to perpetuate injustice. You see, it all sounds so good. So persuasive. Listening to this woman's story. But in the end, there's no wisdom here. There's only passivity and injustice. And all the while, things spiral downward further. And so, the question then comes to us. What should we take away from this chain of events? What is this first scene saying to us? Well, I would say it's giving us a warning. And the warning is this. Beware of confusing persuasive pragmatism with biblical wisdom. 
Pragmatism is the philosophy that if it works, it's right. Beware of confusing persuasive pragmatism with biblical wisdom. Things can sound smooth and compelling and still be utterly opposed to the Word of God. Things can make sense and even seem to work out all the details just right, and yet they can be leading us in the path of foolishness. Friends, this is a distinction we need to recover in our churches today. Far too often, Christians will adopt some idea or some practice because it works smoothly and they are persuaded by the results that it promises. So for example, your church will grow faster if you minimize precise doctrinal positions. Your children will like you more if you are more lenient and more in tune with the prevailing culture. You'll get promoted more quickly if you fudge that requirement or push the boundary on that business deal. In each of those examples, you could be persuaded that because the outcome is good and helpful, therefore it's wise. More people in your church means more folks hearing the truth. That's good. More quote-unquote goodwill with your children means better conversations, right? That's good. More money in your pocket means you can give more to missions. And you can provide better for your family. Do you see what I mean? It all sounds so good, doesn't it? And yet all the while, the Scriptures go unchecked. God's Word goes unconsulted. And we think it's wise because everything lines up just so. We need to know the difference, friends. Persuasive pragmatism prioritizes convenience. Biblical wisdom prioritizes obedience. Persuasive pragmatism values results. Biblical wisdom values character. Persuasive pragmatism asks, what's the quickest way to get out of this? And biblical wisdom asks, what's the surest way to be faithful in this? You see it? Obedience over convenience. Character over results. Faithfulness over even deliverance. We need to know the difference. David in chapter 14 doesn't know the difference. And as we'll see in the weeks to come, the price will be costly. In fact, we get a hint of that costly price in the second scene. Verses 23-33. to If the first scene was injustice disguised as wisdom, then this second scene is treason disguised as reconciliation. Treason disguised as reconciliation. David agrees to bring Absalom back. So in verse 23, Joab heads to Gesher, that's Syria, to retrieve the fugitive son. He's been living with his grandfather. David's agreement, though, comes with a condition. Notice verse 24. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Friends, this is why I don't believe verse 1 should be read as David yearning to see Absalom again. The king doesn't want to see him. In fact, this halfway solution makes matters worse and continues for two full years, verse 28 tells us. David allows Absalom to come back, but at the same time, David refuses to be fully reconciled. Now, you can imagine how confusing that would have been for Absalom, not to mention how much it would have embittered the son against his father. Is Absalom forgiven or not? Is he welcome or not? There are no clear answers. 
But Absalom, as we've seen, is never one to just sit back. He's a man of action. So in verse 28, he enacts a plan of his own. He decides to force the issue with his father, and he does so in the name of reconciliation. He tells Joab, verse 32, Why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. On the one hand, Absalom is right. His current situation is no better than exile. He's home, but he's not really home. At least in Gesher, his status was clear. This situation is confusing at best. So on the one hand, Absalom is right. But on the other hand, Absalom is cunning. Think about it, friends. He knows his father will not execute him. His statement about being put to death if he's guilty, that's just for show. That's smoke and mirrors. He doesn't mean it. For years now, David has been letting things slide. It's at least four years, remember? He, uh, Absalom waited two years before he killed Amnon. Now he's been at home for two years. It's at least four years. David has been letting things slide. He let Amnon slide. He's already let Absalom slide once. There is no way David is going to execute Absalom now, and Absalom knows it. This isn't about reconciliation. It's not about reconciliation at all. This is about Absalom gaining the room he needs to operate. And if you think that's an unfair reading of Absalom, then I'd encourage you to look down at chapter 15. What's the first thing Absalom does after his father kisses him? He goes out and makes a play for his father's throne. That's not reconciliation. Absalom doesn't care about reconciliation. The only thing he cares about is fulfilling his own ambition of becoming the king. This is treason disguised as reconciliation. I'm sure you noticed that stuck in the middle of Absalom's scheme is a description of the man's appearance. Did you notice that? Verses 25 to 27. Those verses paint the picture of a handsome man. In fact, no one in Israel is as good-looking as Absalom. His hair gets special attention. It's thick and luxurious. And as awkward as that sounds, that's what the text means. It's thick and luxurious. It weighs 200 shekels when he uh, cuts it. A shekel is about 11 grams. So that's a lot of hair. And he apparently makes a show out of cutting it once a year. Right? Everybody come, I'm going to cut my hair and weigh it. Let's see how much it weighs. So taken all together, what is Absalom known for? What's he known for? His appearance. That's what gets your attention when you meet him. He's strikingly handsome. But as one old Puritan pastor said about Absalom, do you know what's not mentioned in verses 25 to 27? Absalom's character. His integrity. His heart for the Lord. His desire to keep God's Word. None of that is mentioned. All we get, all we hear about are Absalom's good looks, Absalom's flowing hair, Absalom's stunning appearance. It seems the man's only commendable quality is that he's good looking. Better looking, in fact, than any other Israelite. But then we remember that we've seen this before, haven't we? 1 Samuel chapter 9 introduced us to Saul. And the only thing mentioned about Saul was his appearance. David is said to be handsome too, but he's also described as having a heart after God. Saul is described as being taller than any other Israelite. That's the only thing you know about him, his appearance. 
And then we remember God's own warning in 1 Samuel 16. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Friends, that's why verses 25 and to 27 are stuck in the middle of Absalom's story. It's the author's way of telling you, beware. Beware. We've seen this kind of man before. And he may look good, but he's no leader. In fact, I take that to be one of the primary takeaways from this second scene. It's another warning, this time not to confuse good appearances with actual leadership. Don't confuse looking good with actually leading. In our world, image is everything. Who cares if you can actually do the job? You hear it in everything from sports to politics. All that matters is you look the part. NFL teams draft guys because they look like quarterbacks. That's ridiculous. In our world, all that matters is that you look the part. Image is everything. But in God's kingdom, image is nothing. Character is everything. In fact, God seems to say that what the world considers to be good, He considers to be bad. God values the weak, the lowly, the humble. In God's kingdom, image is nothing. Character is everything. And that's what Absalom lacks. Just like that's what Saul lacked. Character. Dale Davis, in his commentary, helpfully calls this the Absalom trap. I like that description. The Absalom trap. As Christians and churches, we should always beware of falling into the Absalom trap of valuing image over character. This is a good biblical rule of thumb, friends. The call to lead other people is answered first in the quiet cultivation of godly character out of the spotlight in your own heart. You learn to lead yourself before God entrusts you with leading others. That's what makes you a leader. Not that you look good or sound good, but that you are good in the sense of cultivating a heart for God. You can make up just about any deficiency in skill. You can get better training. You can surround yourself with other skilled people. You can outrun a talent deficit. You will never outrun a character deficit. It will catch up to you eventually. And when it does catch up to you, the fallout will be traumatic. Friends, each of us in this room has some level of leadership entrusted to us by God. Each of us. Whether it's in our homes, in our workplaces, or in the church, God has entrusted each of us with some level of leadership. And so, as we consider this Absalom trap, each of us should be renewed in our desire to cultivate what this man lacked. Character. Each of us should be challenged afresh not to be content with appearances, but to press on in the cultivation of what constitutes true and godly leadership. Character. Looks can be deceiving, friends. Looks can be deceiving. So let's do what David didn't do. Let's be vigilant against the Absalom trap of valuing image over character. We said at the outset that 2 Samuel 14 is not as shocking as the previous chapters. And that's true. It's not as shocking. But it's no less of a glimpse into the downward spiral of David's kingdom than those passages were. Again, we see David fails to lead as he ought. Again, we see David fall short of overseeing his own family. Not to mention the kingdom as a whole. I mean, this spiral is deep, isn't it? The David who courageously struck down Goliath seems but a shadow 
compared to this David who is too afraid to confront his own son. I mean, it's been said before, but it bears repeating here in this chapter. The very best men are men at best. When you slow down long enough to pay attention, you find out that the Bible's heroes are a lot more like you and me than what it first appears. And that's a good thing, friends. I'm strangely comforted by this chapter. I'm comforted because it reminds me that downward spirals don't have to be the end of the story for the people of God. I'm comforted because David's life teaches me that you can fall from pretty high heights and you can descend into some dark valleys and still the Lord remains faithful. Did you, do you see it here in this text? David has his ups and downs, but do you know who hasn't changed? The Lord. God remains ever the same. I change, He changes not, the old hymn says. That's good news, brothers and sisters. There's a gospel for David's downward spiral. There's a gospel for my spiral and yours. Please don't brush this off as just another sermon conclusion. I'm begging you to listen to this because there's a day coming, if it's not already here, where you will find yourself in a valley that is so far below your highest point that you won't know what to do. You won't remember who you are. But there's a gospel for those low points, friends. And that gospel is that the Son of God knows what it's like to go from the heights of communion with God down to the deepest darkness of this world. Jesus knows what it's like to go down that spiral. But He didn't go down it because of sin. He went down it in order to crush sin. The Lord Jesus laid aside the glory of eternal fellowship with His Father. And He came down into our valley, into our darkness. And there in the frailty of our humanity, the Lord Jesus made our darkness His own. The incarnation of Christ is the answer to the fact that we like to go down. Jesus endured the Father's wrath for all of our sin. He bore the condemnation for all of our failures. He purposefully took upon Himself all the blame for the times we spiraled downward. If you have been high and now you are low, Jesus is saying to you this good news, I was high with the Father and I came down to save people like you and people like me. There's a gospel for weak, fallen sinners like David. Even better, there's a gospel for weak, fallen people like you and me. And I pray that you know that gospel today. And I pray that that gospel gives you comfort every day, whether you are walking in the heights or looking up from the depths. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, we need You more than we know. We pray, Lord, that You would Show us from this passage that we need consistently to check our lives and our thinking and the counsel that we both give and receive against Your Word. We pray, Father, that You would help us to remember that image is nothing in the kingdom of God and character is everything. We pray most of all, Father, that in the midst of whatever we endure in this life and when those days come that we do realize we're at the bottom of a spiral down, we pray, God, that You would help us to remember that there's a gospel for those days that the Lord Jesus went from the heights of communion with God down to the depths of our darkness so that we would not have to stay there. God, we give you thanks and praise for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We pray that you would help us to know his gospel today by faith and to know it every day. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.